Okay, uh, it's that time for us to dig into the Word of God this morning. I'm very excited to uh, bring to you the things that I've uh, really enjoyed learning this, uh, this past few weeks in this particular passage in Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 5, so find your way there. Galatians 5, we're looking at just verses 13 to 15, which is a smaller section of a larger one that we just can't really, you know, maneuver through and get and get through in just a, a brief Sunday message. So we're going to take it a little bit slower. Verses 13 to 15, then, is our, our focus. As you're turning there, I want to say that our time in the Word, this, uh, this brief hour, hour has... Um, Or, or I should say that our time that we're going to spend in the Word in this brief hour has uh, has wedded together some wonderful biblical principles or concepts. It is it is wed together the 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 union of love, freedom, and moral obligation. Huh? Freedom and moral obligation? You say? How can those two things possibly be compatible, freedom and moral obligation? Doesn't freedom take away any obligation that I may have, moral or otherwise? And what does love have to do with it all? Now, no doubt the Galatians were grappling with these very same questions that, I've just, that I just raised with the, the prodding of the Judaizers, their new best friends, and had criticized Paul's gospel of grace, saying that, that it invited loose living, prevented the moral living that only the gospel of law could bring. And this is one of the biggest reasons why the Jews found Paul's view on the Mosaic law a stumbling block and a hard adjustment for even some believing Jews in Jerusalem so early into their Christian faith. They grew up believing that, 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 to be, that the law is their means of salvation and their means of pleasing God and of establishing moral and holy living. Now, the, the law defined for the nation what holy living looks like. How can one be free from paganism without adherence to the law, they would think? And how else will he, once delivered, continue to restrain sin in his life, if not by God's law? These are fair questions. The argument may seem obvious and airtight on its face. It's the same one that the penitentiaries in our country use to validate their prison reform, thinking that time spent behind bars will somehow transform prisoners morally. Yet the percentage of recidivism for those released from prison after doing their time is significantly great. It's also the argument that our forefathers, I think, must have had when they rely, uh, and relied on when forming the law of our countries on the basis of Old Testament law. But you see, the problem with, with the argument is very simple. External obedience to God's law does not make one holy. A person cannot simply decide one day to live by the Ten Commandments and expect that that will make him holy. And this thinking is exactly behind the Judaizers' gospel of law. The truth is, for one to enjoy true moral reform, one must internalize God's truth. God's truth must become part of one's nature. 
One has to be made holy first before God's law will be of any benefit to him. And that's exactly what happens when one is born again. God's word is internalized in the believer. God infuses him with a moral compulsion and an ability to love and obey his law with the indwelling Holy Spirit and the reception of Christ's own nature. You see how that works? The internalizing of God's law is the hallmark, really, of the new covenant. God promised in Ezekiel 32, if you remember verse 27, I will put my Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to follow my ordinances. Now, the indwelling Holy Spirit causes the desire for God's moral law and a compulsion to live it out in joy. John MacArthur says it, says it this way at this point in his commentary, quote, the Christian has the glorious privilege of living under the internal guidance, restraint, and power of the Holy Spirit who energizes him to obey the will of God, end quote. It's a great quote. Now, it was important, you see, for the Galatians to understand this. In our passage before us, Paul lays it all out. He assures the Galatians that his ardent stance for the gospel of grace and against the gospel of law in no way destroys their moral obligation. But rather, it is the only thing that will preserve true morality in our lives. In fact, a sincere commitment to Christ brings with it ethical obligations that we are not only free to do, but we love to do. Now, maybe you can see how the Judaizers missed all this, reducing the law to an external practice, defining freedom that comes with Paul's gospel of grace as free from obligations and inviting immorality and seeing no place for love anywhere in this equation. Now, Paul, bring, Paul, Paul writes all of this confusion in the minds of the Galatians in verses 13 to 15, which has this one central idea. And that's this, we must be careful to use our God-given freedom in Christ, not as an occasion to indulge our old ungodly habits, but to serve one another through the, lo through the love that comes with that freedom. Since the law itself, really a law of love, was meant positively to facilitate this. And violating it only destroys our testimony. Yes, that's a mouthful. But I want to open it up for you as we go, and it is such a wonderful and timely message. So let's examine it, okay? Truth by truth. Number one, Christians must be careful to use their God-given freedom in Christ, not as an occasion to indulge their old ungodly habits, but to serve one another in love that comes with their freedom. Now, hopefully you see right away that right doctrine produces right living. Paul is interested in getting the Galatians' doctrine right so that they will live to please Christ. And according to the right doctrine, God has given us freedom in Christ. Look at the opening words of verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Let's stop right there. You were called. God is the subject. Calling is the verb. You is the object. Very simple. God called you to freedom. 
We met right away with a great doctrine here that we would do well to remind ourselves of for several reasons, not the least of which is that it's, it's very much under attack today. It was in Paul's day, and it is in our day. And that doctrine is the doctrine of election. Paul says, with reference to our salvation, that's the freedom he speaks of, God called us. The new birth was not something we secured on our own or cooperated with even, with, with God. We had no more to say in our second birth than we did in our first one. God demonstrated his love, the Bible says, toward us while we were yet sinners. And in that condition, Christ died for us, saving us from his wrath to come. What a glorious truth. Another way to put that is that God saved us from our bondage to sin. He called us out of it and into moral and spiritual freedom. And as we explained in our treatment in verse 1 a few weeks back, where Paul introduces the word freedom for the first time, we understand it to be the condition in which a person enters upon salvation, where for the first time in his life, he is free to love and please the Lord, free to obey God's commands and principles out of love for him. Jesus would later say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. By the way, there's the connection between love and moral obligation, in case you're wondering. Let me also say, Paul brings a, an important clarification in the rest of the verse. In the same breath, he warns us, look, do not use your freedom in Christ to indulge in ungodly habits of our unconverted life. He says, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Now, I want to ease into this. Um, this is going to occupy probably most of our time. I want to get into this concept of the flesh with you, which is a very misunderstood concept. So you're going to have to really think with me as we go through this. I've tried to make it as, uh, as understandable as possible. Some of these concepts are not that easy. But I think I've stumbled upon something after some erstwhile study that I hope will validate what I uh, hope to bring to you at this, at this time. I mentioned a few times during our study of this wonderful letter how Paul not only exposes and tears apart, both logically and doctrinally, the false gospel of the Judaizers, right? He also does a fair bit of defending the truth. For example, he spends the first two chapters defending his apostolic calling and his message. And then in chapters 3 and 4, defending his doctrine that the Judaizers had distorted and twisted before the Galatians in order to discredit his message. Now, one of the aspects of Paul's message that they twisted was this important aspect of the gospel that, call, that Paul calls freedom. The Judaizers were telling the Galatians that Paul's understanding of freedom, well, actually leads to lawlessness. After all, if Paul's right and there is a, a uh, there is there is a um, requirement to observe the law, then we are, or, or no requirement rather to observe the law, then we are bound to be lawless. That just makes sense. Take out the law, we're going to be lawless. And to many unsuspecting believers in Galatians who were not as well grounded in their theology as Paul was, they swallowed all of this hook, line, and sinker. The Judaizers could make it seem as though Paul's message was indeed inviting loose living. 
No rules? No law? In this gospel of grace, one is free to do whatever he well pleases? All right. But nothing could be farther from the truth. And Paul, in Paul's return to the topic of freedom and his call to live as those who have truly been set free by an inter internal regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, he takes some time to make sure that the Galatians understood that to have Christian freedom does not mean all of that, hence his command to them to not turn their freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But is, what, what is Paul really getting at here with this comment then? Well, to answer that, you need to know what he means by flesh. So here's the tough part. Buckle up. <laughs> up to this point in the letter, Paul has used flesh six times. He mentioned it in every chapter, in fact, but with a very specific idea of the physical body. For example, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, and that means with people. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified, which again refers to people. No person will be justified by the law. In chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And in that context, flesh refers to human works, such as circumcision, which was the removal of literal flesh. And it has the exact same idea of human effort or works in chapter 4, verse 23. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through promise. So Abraham was going to help God along, right, by having a child with, with his handmaid. That's doing things by human will, by the power of the flesh. That's what that really means. Now, in our context, chapter 5, verse 13, Paul introduces a new concept of flesh that the Galatians understood because he doesn't go on to define it. So we're assuming that they knew it well. They had an advantage over us. We are a little bit at a loss. So I want to say that most commentators seem to attribute the idea of flesh here to the sin nature. That's what it means to them, the sin nature, or old nature. But I want to tell you this cannot be the case because Christians do not have two natures. Only Christ did, right? He had a divine nature and a human one. No, Christians do not have two natures. They don't have a sinful nature and a new redeemed nature, as if somehow those two are, are warring with each other. There is plenty of scriptural evidence to support the fact that our new nature replaced the old nature. We were once dead, but now we're alive. Our old man died, and a new man rose to newness of life, Romans 6, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 makes the clearest declaration of this. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old things pass away, behold, new things have come. And when God speaks in Ezekiel 36 of making a new covenant, one of God's distinctive elements in that covenant is in verse 26, 
where God says that he would remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. You remember that? Heart, in this context, is code for nature, for who you are. You know, the real you that we can't see. Essentially, God would replace the sin nature with a new redeemed nature. That's the promise of the new covenant. What is true of all of us born-again persons is that Jesus has redeemed the immaterial part of, of us, replacing our sin nature with a new nature. It's so wonderful. And by the way, his declaration in Jeremiah 31, 33, where he also makes the promise of the new covenant, he said, I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, which is a great example of how God internalizes the truth at salvation. Well, more on that later. So far, so good. But there is a, a part of our makeup that has not been redeemed. And won't, actually, until we get to heaven. And that is our bodies. So there is hope for us. <laughs> How does that affect us now? Hugely. And I, this is the part I want you to think through me with. Now, this is, this is profound stuff. It comes from the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but having a new redeemed nature that is housed in an old, unredeemed body of flesh and blood poses a great challenge to us. It does. Now, I've not heard this from any commentator that I've read. I have several that I've consulted. I haven't found anything on this. It doesn't mean that there isn't anything out there, um, but uh, what I'm about to give you is something that, to me, makes the most sense. I, I want you to know that there is a very real connection between our new nature and our physical makeup, which is why when we are eventually in heaven, God will redeem our bodies as well. He'll change it. God made us a unity, you see, both material and immaterial beings. And he will keep us that way in heaven. But until we are fully redeemed with a glorified body in heaven, this connection between our new nature and our physical state, as I say, is challenging. How so? Well, our physical state exerts all kinds of influences on us that can create temptation for us. Really? Yes. You see, God made, made us with physical bodies that have certain sensations, pure, raw feelings that come from our physical bodies, like, for example, pain, Pleasure, fatigue, strength, weakness, even scent and sight and hearing causes sensations in our bodies, which is why they belong to what we call sensory perception. That is the ability to understand and interact with our environment using all five senses. We've got sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. It's all physical. Now, I want, you, I want to tell you that, that these feelings and perceptions that come by way of our physical bodies can influence our decision-making. Honest, they can. Right before Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, Moses records in Genesis 3-6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to her eyes. She took, she ate, she gave, and so on. It was rapid succession after that. Let me say again, the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, that we live by influence our decision-making. They interact with our new nature, exerting certain pressures on us. This is so important for you to know when you fight the good fight every day, every week, every month, every year, and on until the Lord comes. You need to know the nature of the fight. Now, I want to be careful that you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I am not saying that our five senses cause us to sin. There's a big X there. No, absolutely not. I, I, I am not saying that at all. We sin in the heart, the mind, right? When Jesus told us that we are to cut off our right arm or gouge out our right eye, if it tempts us to sin, he was not being literal about our eye or our arm. A blind man can still lust in his mind, right? He was speaking figuratively to say that we need to amputate from our lives even the best things, computer, car, iPhone, etc., if they pose a tempting threat to us, especially if we're trying to overcome a particular sin in our lives that, that, that one of those wonders of technology would make it easy to commit. What I am saying then is that there are certain feelings that come from our sensory perception, our physical bodies, that have an effect on our thinking and can tempt us to sin. While the right eye does not cause you to sin, in Jesus' illustration, it is nevertheless a harmful influence that needs to be gone if you're going to overcome sin, right? Why would Job say that he makes a covenant with his eyes not to look at a virgin? Job lusts in his heart, like all of us do. But what he takes in through the eye gate goes directly into the heart and poses a challenge. You see how this works now? Are you surprised that a starving man would steal just to satisfy his hunger? No. Or someone in extreme pain is short of patience? Both of them, both of them are, are, are definitely... Sins. It's a sin to steal. It's a sin to be impatient. But neither can be blamed, uh, can, can blame their sin on their physical condition. Remember, it's the heart. But yet, there is no question that the physical exerts impulses and feelings and perceptions that all come into the control center of the heart through the physical senses and can influence it if we allow them to. I'm reminded of what one of my mentors used to say. If you want to see a Christian, or if you want to see if a Christian is sincere about his sanctification, just stomp on his foot real hard and see how he responds. <laughs> Some of you know who I'm talking about. He was being a bit facetious, but you get his point. Would a true hedonist do or say anything just to feel good? Of course he would. Are his physical urgings and feelings to blame? No. His heart is to blame. His heart is wicked. But you see how he can be led by them. 
And we also, as Christians with a new redeemed nature, can give in to our urgings and our feelings that come from our physical makeup. I believe this is why once we're in heaven, our bodies will be changed to a different makeup, no longer earthy, and therefore not needing nurturing or to be dependent on anything here on this earth. In Jesus' resurrected state, he didn't have to eat. So hunger would never be a reality in his case. Now, just to round this off, um, there's one more part to this that I want to add. When we were unbelievers, okay, we catered to the desires of our physical makeup for sure. That is, we had no choice but to be led by our gut, by our feelings, our sensations, our pain, our fatigue. That's what it means to be in bondage to sin. But when God redeemed us and gave us a new nature, our desire is now to please Christ and to keep at bay those influences that are brought on by the unredeemed part of our makeup that we were once enslaved to. And I believe that Jay Adams comes closest in his commentary on Galatians to identifying the flesh, he says, quote, as the body that has been habituated by the sinful nature with which we were born, end quote. What he is saying is that our uncon as unconverted people, our sin nature conditioned our physical makeup in, in, just a way, in such a way that we developed sinful habits that catered to its demands. We find a good example of this in 2 Peter 2.14, where Peter speaks of false teachers, obviously unbelievers, who, he says, have hearts trained in greed. With a sin nature, unbelievers train themselves to give sinful responses to their physical conditions and to the demands of their physical makeup. And when God saves them, they have to learn how to reprogram their responses to their physical makeup. We've trained ourselves to give sinful responses all our lives. The moment you become a Christian doesn't mean that you shed all that. You've got to now revisit them all. And usually we, they, they, they come to us because we'll act in a certain way out of habit. And then we say, oh boy, look at that. And we have to deal with it. So with a sin nature, unbelievers, as I say, train themselves to certain responses when we are saved, we have to learn to reprogram our responses to our physical makeup. And maybe, maybe you, you might have a better idea now of what Paul commands us in Romans 6, 12, and 13. Are you ready? He says, therefore, sin is not to remain in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Oh, that makes a lot of sense now. With new redeemed, a new redeemed nature, we Christians can now retrain ourselves to act what is true of us, to put off those characteristics of the old sin nature that we once had. We're not putting off a sinful nature because that died, that's gone, been replaced with a new nature, we are putting off now the characteristics of that old nature that still remain with us, that we have to 
replace with godly habits that are true of our new nature. Well, we have the propensity as Christians to fall back on ungodly habits that are characteristic of our unconverted life, which, by the way, makes it all the more difficult dealing with the flesh. We're not perfect yet, but we strive to be that. Now, what a statement this is by Paul. Do not use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity to fulfill the lusts that are brought on by our physical makeup. And I know that this is many times easier said than done because even though we have been redeemed and given a new redeemed nature, as I say, we're still not perfect, ever growing toward completion in Christ, right? And as we conform to the image of Christ, we beat down the impulses. That's what Paul did, 1 Corinthians 9. He beat down the lusts of his flesh that would war with the Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit. More on that in the next passage. Rather than live to indulge in such lusts, which is not Christian freedom at all, Paul says in the rest of verse 13 that we instead should serve one another through the love that comes with our freedom. He says, but serve one another through love. Our freedom in Christ has given us the ability and the desire to serve through love. Oh yes, what a, gr- what a great truth this is and one, that, one of the paradoxes of Christianity Christ has delivered us from slavery to sin that we might become his slaves, slaves of righteousness, so that we could live a life of service to others, which we desire to do. Our love for Christ as our love for the Lord Jesus compels us to want to live for him, bringing him glory and honor to his name, compels us to want to be like him. He gave his life for others, so we should as well. He was a servant to others, so should we be as well. It should be obvious to us as we read this that the Christian life is others-oriented, always. We live to serve, and that service is motivated by a tangible expression of biblical love. Brings us to the second truth in verse 14. Paul says that the law was really meant positively to help believers achieve this loving service. Now, this is such a great turn of the tables here on the Judaizers. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love the Lord, the love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where have you heard that before? From the very lips of, of Jesus himself, recorded in Matthew 22, 38 to 40. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, obviously, Jesus is quoting from Leviticus 19, 8. <clears throat> I don't know if you ever thought that the law taught that we are to love our neighbors, but but it does. There's no question that the Judaizers missed it. No surprise there. But Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, who knew the law well and now having been converted, knows its true meaning. He introduces something in verse 14 that's tremendous, a tremendous help 
to his to his uh, to his uh, struggling Galatians. You remember that we urged uh, argued rather from Paul's doctrine in chapters three and four that the law was not meant to save anyone. Do you remember? But rather to expose a person's sin and to condemn him, leaving him the only option to turn to Messiah's future work of redemption. Well, that's because God gave it, you see, initially to saved Israelites. The law was given to the believing community initially. God gave saved Israel his moral law so that they would know how to manifest their love for him correctly, so that they might live out a holy life that will allow God to dwell in their midst. It was God's way of guiding his elect, the remnant of the nation, into holiness, how to love both God and neighbor. Therefore, while the law today still condemns anyone who is not a believer, pointing him, again, to the only solution in Christ, it ever remains the believer's guide to living his imputed holiness before the Lord. I speak, of course, of the moral law, not the ceremonial or the civic part of the law, the, the Ten Commandments. To be as specific as I can, the law was meant to facilitate the holy endeavors of the believer. Now, this is what I love about what Paul does here. He essentially redefines the relationship between the believer and the law. It was not what saved them, but it was what facilitated their sanctification. And for those of us in the New Covenant, it is our obligation, it is not only our obligation, but our delight, our desire to live by God's holy standard. We've been freed to do that. And don't miss the crux of verse 14. The essence of God's moral law is love on two levels. It is the vertical level and the horizontal level, and in that order. Christians are called to love God with their whole being so that they can go on to love or have the same regard for their neighbor as they have for themselves. The order is very important. We don't love people the way they want us to love them. We love them the way God wants us to love them because we love God more than them. Now, before we move off this, let me confirm for you this relationship that the New Covenant believer has with God's moral law. Two passages, I think, will suffice here. One is Romans chapter 13, just two verses there, verse 8 and verse 10. Paul says, the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. How about that? <laughs> That's from Paul himself. And we get the same idea from James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. Those of us in Christ now know the law of Moses as the law of love. That it's about how we love God as we ought and consequently how we love neighbor as we ought. And that is the essence of the Christian faith. Because we are free from the curse of the law, we are free to obey it. 
and consequently show proper love both to God and neighbor. That's the relationship we have with the law that comes with faith in Christ. Now, at this point, Paul needs to warn those who are free then in Christ, since there's always a tendency for God's people to push his principles to the extreme. And, and Satan is only too happy to facilitate their distortion and abuse of God's principles. Just as the Judaizers' gospel of law saves no one and leads Christians who might embrace it into an extreme position of legalism, so Christians themselves can, if they're not careful, abuse their freedom in Christ to the opposite extreme and become very selfish and unloving. How does this happen? We learn about it in verse 15. This is the third and last point we'll make. If we violate the law of love, then we destroy our testimony. We destroy our personal walk with Christ and we destroy our testimony. Paul deals with this very problem here. Listen, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Hmm. Now, you need to understand the construction of the Greek sentence behind this English translation if you're going to get Paul's meaning. Brief, brief, ever so brief Greek lesson. Let me explain it to you as simply as I can. There are as many as four conditional sentences in Greek. Four conditional sentences, each with a different purpose. The one that Paul uses here is called a first-class condition. And a first-class condition assumes that the first half of the conditional sentence is true or factual, which means that the second part of the sentence is the, uh, will then be a natural consequence of the truth in the first part. So if the first part is true, you can be sure that this is the consequence that will follow. That's first-class condition. So when Paul says that if you bite and devour one, or, one another, he's not saying that the Galatians were doing this. This was not true of the Galatians at this point. Paul is simply saying that if we assume it to be true or a fact, just for sake of argument, then we can expect that the natural consequence of those actions would lead them all to destroy each other. If what is stated in the first part of the sentence is assumed to be a factual statement, then what is stated in the second part will also be true. Again, in the Galatians case, if it were true that they were biting and devouring one another, then it will also be true that eventually they will destroy each other in their church. Now, the same construction, by the way, is used in 1 John 1.9. That's a verse that I think you're well familiar with. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Same first-class condition. The only question in this verse is whether or not you will confess your sins to God. But if you do confess, if confessing your sin to God becomes a reality, then you can be confident that Jesus will forgive your sins and cleanse you. First class condition. Having said that, Paul wants us to know then that we Christians can violate the law of love by abusing our freedom. We abuse this freedom when we 
redefine it as something other than what it really is. True biblical freedom is to love God and love neighbor as we ought, then, then an abuse of that freedom would be to make it all about us and our wants, not about others and their needs. That's how we abuse freedom. God did not free us from the law and sin and his wrath so that we can live any way we choose. Freedom is not being able to express our thoughts and attitudes in a selfish way and at the expense of our neighbor. That's no different than the life that God delivered us from. So if we are acting that way, we come full circle back to the depraved way of living. No, the Christian life is never about ourselves. It's always about the other person, always about how we serve that person to the glory of God. Now, it's important that we understand how we can abuse our freedom in Christ and that we are careful never to let that happen because as Paul now explains in the rest of verse 15, the consequences of that abuse can be tragic. If we allow that violation, we will destroy our testimony. What Paul gives us here in the second half of this verse is not a suggestion or even a good idea, but a command. He said, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And I'm reminded right away of James' congregation and the terrible atmosphere and disunity that the members there created by their selfishness. It's a great, it's a great case study of what Paul's talking about here. So let me, let me take you through it. As a result of abusing their freedom, I'm talking about the congregation of James, book of James. They were destroying the unity of the body. They obviously grumbled over their lots in life and didn't find God's grace in their trials. Many of them were hypocrites, going through the motions of prayer without a, without a firm trust in the, God, the sovereignty of God. They were double-minded, hypocritical. They were sharp with their tongue, and they slandered each other when they had the opportunity. They, the rich members exalted themselves over the poorer members, so the whole church showed partiality. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They were slow to hear, quick to speak, and quicker to anger. They were guilty of judging each other hypocritically, and many did not consider God's sovereignty within their lives and in their plans at all. Now, all of this because of an abuse of their gospel freedom. In chapter 4, James shows us a perf or gives us a perfect explanation of what is behind abusive freedom. Here's what he says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that war against the, the parts of your body? You lust, you do not have, so you commit murder. You are, not, you are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you, uh, what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Friendship with the world is hostility to God. Can you see that their abuse of gospel freedom 
the source of all their troubles was un, this ungodly lust that came from their flesh. The pleasures, the lusts, the wants, the desires, the cravings. And because they couldn't get it, they hated, they committed murder, they quarreled, they fought. They clearly had become idolatrous in a desire to please themselves. Well, just before we leave, James, I want to point out two important observations that we that we'll not be surprised to see knowing what we know now about the meaning of biblical freedom and how it relates to the practical outworking of good works. James 2 verse 8 not only refers to the law as a law of freedom for Christians, but those who continue in it are blessed in what they do. This is what James says. But the one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. How about that? He's talking about the law. And later in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, James refers to God's law again, but this time as the wisdom of God, which when Christians live it out, produce righteous works. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, responsible, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. It's obvious that the world's wisdom leads them to selfishness, whereas God's wisdom, the law, leads to selflessness. Only in the context of salvation, only when you are born again and you have been freed with a love and a desire to keep God's word. So have you been freed by the gospel of grace to love the Lord and neighbor by fulfilling his law of love? How is this truth manifest in your life? More importantly, do the members of members of the body of Christ see it manifest in your life? And what about the world in which we live? People that you work with, unsafe family members that you live with, people you see at the gym or in some social gatherings. What do they see when they look at you? We live in a place where we are to showcase Christ and his redemptive love, right? Leon Morris' judgment of the church at this point is very sobering. He says, the impression we give the world is that we are not thought to be free at all or particularly loving, end quote. Sobering questions from the text. Let's not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but an opportunity to love God and neighbor as we are for in Christ 
we are free to love. And our God and Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to look at your word this morning, a word that has come from your mouth, penned by your prophets, and preserved down through the centuries to be in our hands that we might know your mind. We pray, O oh God, that we would commit ourselves to these great truths in Galatians 5, that we would not abuse the freedom we have been given in Christ for selfish gain, but rather to love you by loving your people and by loving those who even hate us, that they might know the love of Christ. Oh, Father, we do pray that you will assist us in this, that we would find your grace sufficient for these tasks, and that in doing so, we would bring you great honor and praise, and that we would benefit the church, the church you died for. And Father, we pray then that, that you will accompany us with a, a great confirmation that we are doing just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.